This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm your host, Dakota Arsenault, and today's episode is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. Before we get into today's episode, I want to just get a few housekeeping things out of the way. Uh, if you haven't heard by now, we now have a website. Go to ContraZoomPod.com for all your ContraZoom needs. There are past shows, guest appearances, blog entries, everything you could possibly want. Uh, so please check it out and, and let me know what you think. And also, if you give us a five-star rating and review on either iTunes or Podchase or wherever you listen to your podcast, send me a screenshot to ContraZoomPod at gmail.com and I will add you to a list to send you some free podcast swag when that becomes available very shortly. So without further ado, let's talk about today's episode. We are continuing our From Wings to Parasite Best Picture Countdown. This is from 2008 to 2017, part one, where we're going to go through numbers 10 through 6 today. And joining me, as always, is Stephanie Pryor. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me back. So we are now in our final full decade of 10 movies, which is exciting because... This goes way back to episode one back in 2015 with Andreas and I doing this and you took over. And so now we're doing our final 10 and it's kind of crazy, isn't it? I know. I can't believe we made it. <laughs> it's yeah, it's, it's definitely weird that it took five years to watch 90 movies. But when you say it like that, I guess it does make a little bit yeah, of sense. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we have lives too. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> what I, we did before this whole COVID thing. Exactly. And, you know, I try to space it out so it wasn't one after another because it is a ton of homework watching 10 movies in a relatively short period of time. So I guess without further ado, we're going to take a short break. And when we get back, we're going to jump right into this. Welcome to Camp Victory. Oh, Camp Victory? This was Camp Liberty. Oh, no, they changed that about a week ago. Victory sound better. All right. So what do you got? The car has been parked illegally. The suspension is sagging. There's definitely something heavy in the trunk. Interesting. What's he doing? I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die comfortable. How many bombs have you disarmed? 873. 873. You're a wild man. You know that? Coming in at number 10 from 2008 is The Hurt Locker directed by Catherine Bigelow. During the Iraq War, a sergeant recently assigned to an army bomb squad is put at odds with his squad mates due to his maverick way of handling his work. So this is the first decade where I've seen all 10 before we even got to this. There was always some movies that I had to go back to to rewatch for the very first time. Uh, this was one where I believe you had seen it once, or did you not watch it fully? I can't remember. But I remember... This was when you were sort of very curious to go back and watch in full because you weren't really sure what you thought about it and how your views on movies had changed and things like that. Now that you've gone back to it after being much more acquainted with cinema as a whole, what were your sort of overview thoughts of it? Yeah, so I had first viewed this back in college uh, when I was living with my guy cousins and that was the movie of choice for that weekend. And I remember not being thrilled at the start before we even put it on. And when I watched it, it was okay. If it was so boring to me, like it was, it was sold to me as a war film and it didn't feel like a war movie. It's a movie about war, but not a war movie. So I was expecting a little bit more action. And then obviously it's about, you know, bomb diffusing, which isn't as action packed as other 
aspects of the war, but I just, it didn't do anything for me then. And uh, upon second watch still did nothing for me. It's interesting. I think, I think there's a lot of good things that go on in this movie. I think the actual bomb defusal scenes are shot very well, especially when the explosions do occur. We know Catherine Bigelow can handle action because that's what most of her career has been is doing action films and, and sort of comparing this to our follow-up, Zero Dark Thirty, where there was a lot of consternation about, is this a pro-torture, anti-torture movie? Which, very clearly, it's an anti-torture movie because the results don't match up with what they inflict on people. They don't get the necessary needed results that they think that they would get. And so watching this, I, I expect it maybe would be a little bit more of a, a gray area. But for the most part, I just kind of feel like it's a bit of a pro-war movie where despite several characters suffering from PTSD, the solution to their problems is to re-enlist. Yeah, totally. I It just feels like a really... Um, just a typical kind of pro-war film. You know, you got your rogue agent who doesn't follow by the rules, who's still affected by things, but like he lives to be a soldier or to enlist and to fight. So it was just nothing new to me. The, the one thing I did like about this film is like the micro shots of any kind of, um, like when a bomb goes off or bullets or anything, you get those, little like grains of sand that are affected by the sound waves and stuff like that. That's probably the only thing I appreciated about this film. Yeah. I I, I liked a few things, you know, uh, the camera work that you're talking about there, there, there seemed to be some other very intensely personal shots like, uh, in the shower scene post nighttime shootout where Jeremy Renner's in the shower and he's got his full clothes and gear on. He just sort of crumples onto the floor and, and that shot in a very intimately personal in a way that, we as a viewer feel like we shouldn't be watching this. And so I think that's kind of a, an interesting way to, to take on it, especially since so much of the movie I feel suffers from what's now called toxic masculinity in this sort of very army bro culture that for the longest time, you know, civilians have sort of accused military and enlisted men to be like, in the military enlisted men have done their best to try to deny it. And, and this sort of just furthers that narrative of, of that's what most soldiers are like. You get some differences like the Anthony Mackie character is, doesn't seem to fully be on board with it, but he also kind of goes along with it at times too, where Jeremy Renner is just fully an unlikable character. Very unlikable. Like there's, there's no redeeming quality about this guy, even when he's back at home He's with his family. You'd think there'd be some sort of angle that you could relate to, but just none. Yeah. Um, I, I think the final thing I want to say is like, I, the, the editing I think was done well there. And you know, there's this, the countdown of days left of how much time they have in their tour of duty. And that kind of is like ticking down like a bomb clock, which I thought was kind of a, a unique way of sort of adding pressure and emphasis. But other than that, this is a bit of a forgettable movie overall. I, I, for the longest time, I'd only seen it when it came out and I was kind of a defender of it, but you know, going back to it, I, I think I was definitely at a different place and maybe I, I wanted this to be better than it actually was. Uh, but in the long run, it's, I don't think it's worthy of a best picture win. You know what I would have preferred 
the movie was actually about Guy Pierce's character. Yeah, he he's in the opening sequence and then yeah. he dies. And, but he commanded more attention and had more charisma than Jeremy Renner did the entire film. So I think I prefer to watch that version. And they also brought in Liam Neeson for a scene too, which was kind of an interesting bit too. It seemed like every time that there was like one of these quote unquote big actors coming into it, uh, those scenes were sort of the highlight. Uh, like you said, Guy Pierce at the beginning and then Ray Fiennes is in the middle and then David Morse also shows up there for a little bit. Uh, and so all of them are, are very interesting and they bring sort of like this spark of energy into the movie for the less than five minutes they're on screen for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did you say Liam Neeson before? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. Was he in it? No, sorry, uh, Ray Fiennes. Yeah, 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 that's what I meant, not Liam Neeson. They're, they're pretty similar, aren't they? The yeah. older British actors. Sure, why not? <laughs> all right, what do we got next? Okay, so coming up in number nine, we have Slumdog Millionaire from 2008, directed by Danny Boyle. Doctors, lawyers never get beyond 16,000 rupees. He's on 10 million. What can our Slumdog possibly know? He went on the show because I thought she'd be watching. She's my destiny. A Mumbai teenager reflects on his life after being accused of cheating on the Indian version of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. This was another one that I was excited to revisit because I remember really enjoying it when I was younger, when I first saw it. So I wanted to see if it still held up. Um, I think it did. I mean, when I first watched it, I wasn't super in love with it, but uh, I know I enjoyed it. And so when I watched it again, uh, it was a good movie for me. It was a good story. I was with it the whole way through. It was entertaining. It was sad. It kind of ticked all the boxes that I was looking for, for just a a movie to watch. Uh, For me, this, I had seen it twice before. Uh, I saw it two times in in theaters uh, when it first came out. Uh, Once, I think with, my mom and then once with someone else, I can't remember, but I know I did see it twice in theaters and I haven't watched it since. And this movie has some things that I think work so well for it, namely the score by A.R. Rockman, which is absolutely beautiful and stunning sort of merging this, uh, Indian meets Western sort of style pop R and B. It's so frenetic and kinetic and, and sort of can't help but really enjoy it and then also the way Danny Boyle shoots India as a whole it's even you know the slums have this sort of beauty to it and then as everything sort of gets bigger and grander he still approaches it with the same sort of eye that he did for the opening sequences and it's all just very beautiful very vibrant very colorful but as a whole I sort of feel this movie is just a little too cruel and wanting to play on your heartstrings too much for me to ever fully be on board with it. Mm, interesting. I mean, it works for me in that sense. I felt I felt like Lion was very similar in that sense. Uh, I don't know if that one, that movie worked better for you, but um, you know, I could imagine all these things happening to to the kids like this around the world. So. I don't know. I felt for them and I was, I was with the characters except for his brother who was just an ass. Yeah. And that, and I think that's one of the things is every scene with his brother, Salim is just far too cruel to sympathize with him as a child. They, you know, they basically posit him as, as the sort of the evil brother and always cruel and picking on his younger brother for the longest time. And then he finally redeems himself at the very end. 
and you're supposed to be fully on board with it. And I'm not, I'm just like, yes, you basically gave your life up to save your brother. But at the same time, I just spent an hour and 45 minutes watching you be probably the worst human being possible, making every single wrong choice to hurt other people, not only your own brother, but uh, other people in the film as well, is that by the time he gets his redemption, it I just didn't care by that point. Mm, yeah. It was also really like a short turnaround t- time too. I always hate when there's these like deep-rooted, bad decision-making characters and then, you know, just fourth quarter. Yeah. yeah, it's like, okay, let's just redeem yourself so we can have this nice wrapped bow at the end. Mm-hmm. A-, a few other things. I, I didn't care for the the slowed frame rate to basically show passages of time and the way the editing was done to sort of overlay images. It just made the movie feel really dated. And I know this is sort of like right around the turn when both digital filmmaking and digital editing was sort of becoming mainstream. You had a few other movies earlier that would do one or the other, but not very often you would get both. I believe this was the first best picture winner to be digitally edited using a software. I can't remember what it was, whether it was final cut or something like that. And it just sort of feels like I don't like this movie is obviously not what you expect from some film students thesis project, but some of the editing feels like editing choices that they would make to show that they were trying to leave an imprint on it and not be boring. And and so for that, in that sense, it doesn't really work for me. I was okay with it. I totally see where you're coming from and it does date it for sure. Um, but it, yeah, it definitely didn't bother me. I do think the, the one thing that does also work really well for me is the chemistry between Deb Patel and Freda Pinto. I think the two of them work really well. Even, even the, the kids when it's not played by them, the, the same characters, they have a really good chemistry together. And so you do believe the love story aspect of it, but I almost don't feel like it's an actual romantic love i feel like it's a platonic friendship love even though they end up romantically together at the very end i don't know if you feel the same way yeah i mean they kind of didn't spend enough time with each other what in their like older years to kind of have form that connection because when you're little you might have crushes on each other or whatever but once you've spent time apart from them too it's kind of harder to to keep those bonds, but maybe those bonds are what, you know, kept them coming back together. Mm-hmm. That's where this formed and became and blossomed. And every time they saw each other, it was just like refreshed and nude in their minds. And obviously, I don't know if people know, but Pinto and Patel did end up dating for a little bit afterwards. So there obviously was a bit of added chemistry to this. I don't know if they were seeing each other while they were filming, but clearly that led to, something so that's why you can see why the chemistry does work between them i think it's more the the story the scripting and the editing that sort of makes it seem a little bit more platonic than it does romantic in my opinion uh can i say a bit of a hot take oh please do i don't like the jai ho sequence at the very end (gasps) i don't think they're very good dancers i don't think that's the point of it but it takes me out of it. Like you see these beautiful, elaborate Bollywood dance sequences that this is very clearly referencing. And I just didn't get it. Like, especially Dev Patel seemed like he has no rhythm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm a sucker for any kind of, um, 
group dance sequence. So I was all in for this when I saw it the the first time and when I watched it again a thousand times on YouTube and then when I saw it again upon this watch. So um, I don't think that they have to be perfect. I don't think this is like some sort of contest where they're, you know, supposed to be judged. They It's just a fun little nod to that film industry and I appreciate it and loved it and ate it up with a spoon. It's a great song. I will give it that. 100%. <laughs> okay. Coming in at number eight is The King's Speech from 2010, directed by Tom Hooper. My husband has seen everyone. Insert them into your mouth. Enunciate. He hasn't seen me. I can't cure your husband, but I need total trust. What was your earliest memory? I'm not here to discuss personal matters. Why are you here then? Because I bloody well stammer! Do you know any jokes? Timing isn't my strong suit. (laughs) The story of King George VI, his impromptu ascension to the throne of the British Empire in 1936, and the speech therapist who helped the unsure monarch overcome his stammer. This is a Best Picture winner that gets a lot of hate thrown its way for being sort of your typical Oscar Beatty movie, and especially since Tom Hooper's career, in my opinion, has really fallen off the last few years, especially with cats coming out last year really ruining his reputation but he also did the danish girl and les miserables both movies i had pretty big problems with but the king's speech as a whole i agree it's probably not a best picture worthy but if you're talking about your your typical biograph historical film it's a pretty decent film and and i think and maybe that's damning it with faint praise where it is a solidly good film but it's not great. Yeah, I agree. So, okay. Full disclosure, I watched this the first time on a plane. <laughs> Couldn't really hear. Uh, I don't even remember where I was going. So, I mean, I, I can say that I did watch this before watching it again, but this was honestly the first time I'd seen it and actually paid attention to it. And I was expecting it to be so much worse than it actually was. Now, It's because it's got such a bad reputation, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, but with that, I will say it's it's just an okay movie. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. I think it's very, I think we were talking before, we, we mentioned, you know, it's very paint by numbers. There's nothing new or exciting. All the acting is great, especially Jeffrey Rush. I really loved his performance and his character. Um, and, you know, everything worked. It was just, you know, especially with the movies that it was up against, running for Best Picture, th- movies like The Fighter, Inception, uh, the Social Network, even Toy Story 3, like those were some heavy hitting films and I can't believe that this beat those out. It's It was the safest movie of all the picks. So safe. And it sort of epitomizes what a lot of people have complaints with the Academy about just being old white men who are suckers for uh, biography movies. And, and this is sort of like the the epitome of that. The movie mostly devolves in sort of too much sentimentality by the end, but like those first two thirds of it really work well for it. It's just like, it's that final and he overcame it and he was a great king and everything was right in the world. But like, you cannot get over the fact that this movie is sort of centered around two main performances of Colin Firth and Jeffrey Rush. And the two of them are phenomenal. And even once you start including some of the more bit players, 
like Helena Bonham Carter as Colin Firth's wife. And then like, it's not even fair casting Michael Gambon to be Colin Firth's father, who's got this like velvet baritone and is yelling at his son to just speak properly. And you're listening to him speaking. You're like, oh, I can listen to Michael Gambon speak mm-hmm. all day. Yeah. And another Guy Pierce. Uh, yes. Doing yay. Always yay. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, their chemistry together, Firth's and Rush's were just great everyone's together even like, I think it was such a great, this isn't technically an ensemble cast, but when you join them all together, I feel like everyone worked. Um, but like, I have so little to say about this film, unfortunately, just because it's, it's not that memorable. Um, it's, it's good. I enjoyed it. I actually did enjoy it. And I thought it was going to like be long and dragged out, but I think it had good pace and yeah, I'd watch it again. I, I've got a few. I think I think I can highlight a few things. Um, I really like how the very opening. I believe it's a horse race or the Olympics or something like that. I can't remember where um, where Colin Firth's character is. It has to give a speech, and it's basically shot like a funeral possession pr- procession. Uh, complete with a priest leading the way. And I think it's just like a really ingenious way to show that this is the one thing that he's definitely afraid of and how he internalizes it. And everyone is staring at him like they're looking up at a casket sort of thing. And he's just standing there silently looking like a ghost. So I think that's really interesting. Um, I really like the cinematography, how most of the characters are usually off center in single shots. Nothing is really shot dead on in, you know, a very Wes Anderson way where everything is perfectly aligned, 90, 90 degree angles. Everything here is just slightly askew and you'll, you'll get this like beautiful shot when they're in Jeffrey Rush's uh, studio and Colin Firth is sitting on a couch, but he's sitting on the end of the couch. And so the couch is sort of centered and Firth is, is way over to the, the right side of the frame. And it just looks really interesting because it paints such a beautiful picture. And then also the color palette. I really like how it's got like this sort of desaturated look to it. I know it's like washed through. It's like London. Yeah, and it's interesting because this is right before, right at the start of World War II. England isn't involved yet, but it's, you know, during the rise of Hitler sort of thing, and they talk about it a little bit. And you sort of expect these muted, pale colors to be post-London bombings, where everything has kind of gone to shit. Um, But this is just before that, and so it's sort of leading up to what is going to be a dark and dreary moment in England's history and they already kind of are infusing the world with that. So it's sort of interesting as a bit of a, a prelude to what is to come for, for the country. Mm. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I think there, I think Hooper does try to put a stamp on it and does some really interesting things, but at the end of the day, it's a very paint by numbers biopic. So coming in at number seven, we have Birdman from 2014 directed by Alejandro Gonzalez in Yaratu. How did we end up here? This place is horrible. Smells like balls. We had it all. You were a movie star, remember? Who was this guy? He used to be Birdman. I like that poster. You wrote this adaptation? I did, yeah. And you're directing and starring in your adaptation. That's ambitious. Uh, This follows a washed-up superhero actor attempt to... revive his fading career by writing, directing, and starring in a Broadway production. I remember the first time I watched this, um, I didn't like it very much at all. Um, It was just long. I didn't see the point of it. But on the second watch, I appreciated a few more things. 
but still didn't, it wasn't my favorite. I think it's so long and so unnecessarily long. But one thing that I absolutely love about this film is Michael Keaton. I think he sells this. He is the star of this movie, even though Edward Norton does have like some like shining moment scenes. I would watch this movie again only for Michael Keaton and Michael Keaton only. This movie is actually like really exhilarating to to rewatch. A lot of people complain about the sort of one take aspect of it. And I find that so exciting. It is very much like 1917 from this past year where it's made to look like it's it's all taking place in real time with the exception of they, you know, they, they do a little bit of time lapse of showing it going from night to day, the next sort of thing, and then day to night. So they do some interesting stuff with that. But I, I love the, this one take aspect. I know it's a criticism that a lot of people have in it. Does it work for you? Um, it's funny because I remember it being one feeling like one take and then watching 1917 in theaters and just being so enthralled with the, this air quote one take film that going back, I was so excited to, to relive that. And I found it so tedious this time around. I was like over it. I was like, okay, yeah, like we've been down these hallways. It felt so much more obvious to me than 1917 did where it felt like you were along for the ride in 1917. This just felt like, you were trying to keep up and reliving certain moments. It was almost like Groundhog Day. It was like, oh, here's this this corner turnaround stairs again. Oh, here's this, you know, entrance into his uh, dressing room and then the other entrance exit out of his dressing room. It just didn't do anything for me. Um, the one thing I did like was when the music uh, was incorporated into that, like, one take. So they're, like, walking down hallways and there's the drummer in the background doing the little, like, mm-hmm. hits, which was great. But otherwise, yeah, I didn't like it. I didn't like it at all. That's such a shame. I loved it. And I especially love, there's sort of two things I I quite enjoyed about it. One is when the camera would sort of freeze on an empty hallway and you're just sort of waiting to see what comes next because the camera understands that something is going to come back into frame very shortly and you're, you're going to have to be forced to sit there and wait and whether it's the same character coming back out of a room or a different scene starting up, I think it's just a really interesting idea. And then the other one being, and you are to basically goading the audience of having the camera in front of mirrors so often being like, you can't see us, but we're right here. Yeah. I know this is like a 90 degree face on the mirror and look at us. You can't see the camera or the cameraman or any other crew members. So I think that was a really interesting way to kind of like force the viewers to acknowledge the spectacle of what was going on. Mm. I did. I do like all the mirror things. Although after a while I couldn't stop thinking, how the hell do they do this? I, I need to look up <laughs> to see how they do this. So it was a bit distracting, but um, I love any scene with any mirror in it for some reason. So I definitely enjoyed that. I love the like kind of split personality thing you're getting from seeing the back of someone's head and then their their reflection and what that does to their character and what that means to the film. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, what I've already said, I just, I didn't, I wasn't on board this time around. Now you talked about uh, a little bit about the drum music as a whole. How did you find that score? gonna really dislike me oh no stephanie (laughs) it's like a constant tick going off and you're just like is this gonna end soon like when does it get to that final moment where the alarm goes off you can hit snooze and it's gone it was just you know and it was just like loud and overpowering so i can understand that like from a 
you know, a story standpoint where, you know, he's going through these mental issues and there's just something constantly in the back of his head and he always feels kind of overwhelmed and like things are coming up from behind. I get it. And it's annoying. So maybe it worked in that sense. Maybe that's what Inyarti was going for, but it was annoying to me. We sometimes will talk about the movies a little bit after we watch them, usually just like general overview thoughts, but usually don't get too deep into whatever notes we have. And and this was something that didn't come up and I'm so disappointed. I love this score. (laughs) I think it's so refreshing that it's a single instrument and it's basically Michael Keaton's character, Riggin, his basically like his heartbeat mixed with like his brain firing in different synapses. And, you know, the, sometimes the beat would be nice and simple. And then sometimes when things are getting super stressful and crazy, it's this crazy intricate beat with lots of symbols. And I loved it. I, I, I just, I think it's one of the better and most unique scores in, in recent modern movies and something that makes me really happy. Uh, I do love how the backstage sequences are just as theatrical and over the top as the onstage stuff. And it sort of blends these two worlds where the backstage stuff, it's so over the top and theatrical, but it still sort of feels grounded in reality, even though it feels like we're watching a play. And then when you see the actual play stuff, they're theatrical and over the top, but you feel like you're watching a play. So I think they do a good enough job of separating the two while still sort of keeping that same intensity and manic energy throughout yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I think the entire film kind of follows this. You're watching a theater production. Like, that's what it feels like, mm-hmm. which is quite interesting. Uh, how did all the actors resonate with you? Um, Michael Keaton, you're right, was absolutely fantastic, especially after recently watching the Dark Knight movies. His voice as Birdman is just <laughs> so spot on. Emma Stone, I think... I don't know. It just didn't really work for me, her character, too much. Uh, a little over the top. I enjoyed Zach Galifianakis sort of playing against type. I enjoyed watching both Naomi Watts and Edward Norton playing too type. Um, there's a lot of really interesting sort of smaller performances and, and small little things that are going on that overall I really do enjoy. But this movie is completely anchored by by Michael Keaton. The one big issue I sort of have with this is there's this a couple scenes with this theater critic that are just a bit too much of a of a weak attempt for Inyaritu to take out his anger on them of you don't understand true art. You just sit on your ivory castle and you pass judgment and you don't really understand what you're critiquing and you're just using, you know, metaphors that don't mean anything and that sort of thing. And there's a final big confrontation between Reagan and the critic and it just like it sort of sucks a lot of the energy out of it for me I'm just like none of this is really needed maybe that very first moment where when when Keaton and Norton are in the bar and, and, and Norton points her out I think that's a good thing where you kind of see her scribbling in a corner and and Keaton sends her over a drink or something like that I think that works but every she shows up two more times and just too much for me. Yeah, I kind of agree. I mean, it kind of goes back to, I feel like there's some unnecessary scenes in this film, which makes it too long for me. Um, And that those scenes in particular for sure could have been, you know, just taken out completely. I, I totally agree. The first interaction with her was great and would have sufficed. Uh, I don't think that we needed so many others following. 
All right. Coming in at number six is The Artist from 2011, directed by Michelle Hansavikis. An egomaniacal film star develops a relationship with a young dancer against the backdrop of Hollywood's silent era. This was one that I was kind of unsure of how I would take because when I saw it, I wasn't that big of a fan of. I think I I sort of liked it, but overall, I was not rooting for it to win Best Picture the year it did win. And so I was curious to see if revisiting it, I would maybe have the same reaction that a lot of people have towards it, especially you. You're you're someone who really did enjoy this movie and loved it when it came out. And I liked it. I like what they're doing. But overall, it just doesn't really work for me. It's It's... It tries to pack in too much story, and the story is a little too basic for me, especially when I'm not a big fan of, um, oh, what's the, the the musical that we were comparing it to? Singing in the Rain. Singing in the Rain. It's very similar in story to that, and I'm not crazy about Singing in the Rain, mostly the end sequence, but it does the same story better, in my opinion. Oh, boy. The if you are upset about me and Birdman, I'm going to be upset about you and the artist. <laughs> but I'm excited. We're finally getting into the films that I actually enjoyed in this decade. So, yes, I loved the artist when I first saw this, especially since we saw it in the theater, which was great and amazing, and would recommend anyone to see any silent film in the theater. But upon second watch, I still loved it. There were a few things that I felt didn't work for me quite as much, but. Overall, still love the movie, still love the performances, love the story. I love any silent film. I love this era in particular in history. So, you know, it's it's got me already before you even hit play. And just the story that it takes you through and the different ways that it tells the story, um, especially with the absence of uh, vocals and sound, and then also the little in-between moments where you do get that. I find it really like... Um, poignant and helpful and just amazing to the story. So I really appreciated what it was doing and all the way up to the end dance sequence. Yes, I will agree. It is very much like singing in the rain and maybe singing in the rain does do it better, but I think this film does it differently enough that I still like it. I think the end dance sequence is actually more similar to an American in Paris than Mm -hmm. it is to uh, Singing in the Rain. I, uh, just plot-wise, I think the story is, is similar to Singing in the Rain. But I really think he kind of dances, Jean de Joran, uh, dances like Gene Kelly at the end. So that's that's yeah. where I'm sort of giving that comparison to. I don't know if that's on purpose or that's just the way it was. I, I, I don't know. I imagine... I imagine almost everything in this movie was done on purpose because so many little gags and things like that are clearly nods to classic silent cinema and, and early Hollywood, golden age Hollywood, things like that. Um, so much so that like the movie is shot in classic Academy ratio. Uh, when movies were were shown in theaters, it's like sort of boxy, not completely, but it's uh, it's more boxy than it is rectangular. And they even do uh, a scene where they're at a premiere or whatever. They're showing movies shown in the movie theater 
and they're basically watching movies in the same aspect ratio that we're watching the movie. And so it's kind of cool to be, to see the one-to-one comparison of why it was like that and how they translated that way. So that, that was interesting. You know, I'm never not going to say that the dream sequence where there's sort of like this explosion of sound as um, Jean Dujardin's character is dealing with struggling to come to terms with whether he should be in and talkies or not. And slowly, you know, he puts the glass down and you hear this and then you hear his chair moving and then you hear a dog barking and then he goes outside and he sees women laughing. That is a fantastic sequence. Good. The sound editing in that is amazing. Mm -hmm. It's, it's very something that you'd see in, in something by David Lynch. And, And I think they do a great job of basically making it a nightmare of, having sound effects come in, just everyday sound effects that you you can't imagine. And I think they do such a good job with that. Uh, But overall, this movie is basically a star is born with a happier ending. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we talked about it. We're like, okay, this movie is both Singing in the Rain and A Star is Born mixed together. Yeah, it is. Um, I I do like the highlight of comparing... um, Dujardin's George Valentin character to uh, Douglas Fairbanks, the the early sound, the early uh, silent film star, where they basically insert uh, Jean Dujardin into the Mask of Zorro, where the close-ups are of Dujardin's face, but all the the rest of the shots, the action shots, are from the actual movie with Douglas Fairbanks, and so I, I really like that they sort of. Nod. Yeah, yeah. Where it's it's not a subtle nod, but you still kind of have to know your film history a little bit because I think if you don't know that movie or who Douglas Fairbanks is, you can you can see you can probably assume that it was all made directly for this movie and whether it was a spoof or not. But this is they use the actual footage from that film, which I really did appreciate. Yeah, I thought that was a really cool little moment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's that's kind of yeah. This movie just overall. Sort of works for me, sort of doesn't work for me. It's got a unique artistic voice behind it. I like the final transition into the sound area era uh, where they're like, can we do another take? And you hear him say, with pleasure, <laughs> uh, which is interesting because a lot of the, the people that they sort of modeled his character on uh, who struggled adapting to the talkie era was because they did not, they were not American or at least weren't born in in the U.S., so they didn't have they had accents. So there was several um, international heartthrobs, leading men types, where you know they were Spanish or Mexican or Italian, and they had very thick accents. And of course, you know if it's silent, you can say that they're from Texas or New York or whatever, and the audience wouldn't know any different. But as soon as the talk, as soon as they have to talk in the movies, they basically lost their careers because they were. They spent their entire career being billed as one thing, and then as soon as you talk, the audience is going to think something different, especially when early Hollywood, pre most of Hollywood really, where you're so pigeonholed into this is what your type is, and we can't deviate from that at all. And so I sort of appreciate that that bit of a, a nod to that where they kept him being French. Yeah, me too. All right, so that wraps up our bottom five films from 2008 to 2017. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, I'll let you know what's coming up next episode.
right. So as I mentioned, it was the bottom five. The next episode is going to be the top five films from 2008 to 2017. And this is actually going to be the last decade ranking we do until 2023 because there's only two other best pictures since then. Green Book and Parasite, and I don't want to spoil the show, but it's going to be very short. <laughs> it's going to be number one, Parasite, number two, Green Book. Um, but what we'll probably do is wait until there's five movies at a time. So that's why I say 2023. So with three more Best Picture winners, it'll basically be mini episodes where instead of being over two parts, it'll just be one part again. So that's what that's going to be next week. And actually coming up down the road, we're going to do a a best and worst of the best picture winner. Sort of just talk about uh, what fun we had doing this whole experiment. And remember to check out ContraZoomPod.com where this show is going to be posted along with everything else that is all your ContraZoom needs, including social media, which you can follow at all at ContraZoomPod. Uh, thank you to Aesthetic Magazine for presenting the show, Eric and Kevin Smell for the theme music, and of course, Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. Send us an email to contrazoompod at gmail.com. Let us know what you think were the best, best picture winners from this decade, and we will feature your responses on a future show if you do so. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much.